Hey, this is Dr. Shervin. Muskoka Magazine is brought to you by Dairy Lane Dental, keeping Muskoka smiling for over 30 years. Please visit DairyLaneDental.com. Welcome to On Mohawk Time. I'm your host, Joyce Jonathan Crone. Today we have four very, very special guests, and it's our pleasure and honor to have with us Elder John Elliott, Grandmother Dawn Hill, Grandmother Roberta Hill, and Grandmother Shirlene Bumbery. These four young people <laughs> have gone through what no one should have gone through. These four lovely survivors and warriors are from the Mush Hole, the, the Mohawk Institute in Brantford, Ontario. This is the same residential school that my grandfather attended. These four warriors are part of the film that is being um, screened this weekend at the Three Fires International Film Festival. The film's producer is Faith Howe, an Indigenous woman the, whose great-grandmother was at the Mohawk Institute as well. The film is entitled The Nature of Healing, Surviving the Mohawk Institute. So I am proud to have the four of the survivors of the Mohawk Institute I have uh, visited that location, as you may have heard in my previous um, shows, over 30 times. Having taught the um, grade 12 Indigenous Studies course, we would, I would often take my grade 12 students there and we would stay on the Six Nations of the Grand at the Bears Inn. And these students would get a firsthand view of the residential school. So it's with honor that I am able to interview four survivors and how lucky our um, town of Huntsville is to have them here with us today. So I'd like to welcome each of you. This residential school was opened in 1831 and stayed open until 1970. It was over 140 years of uh, children being stolen and taken and kidnapped. So let's, I would welcome each of you. So um, Grandmother Dawn, I, I would like to ask, can you just tell us a little bit about uh, your, your experience there? Um, sure. Um, we weren't kidnapped or any of those other things, our parents, um, our father had passed away and our mother had a nervous breakdown. Our older sister um, tried to look after us. There was seven of us in the, the, the other half of the family. And so we were placed there by our older sister because she couldn't look after us. And, and that's a lot of kids to have finally in your, in your own family. So that's how we got there. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't a, and I have to tell this because it wasn't a, a very 
nice place to be. It was very violent, actually. And uh, I think the first night that we are actually in the dorm, my younger sister, Roberta, and I um, were placed in the lower bunk. And, and I have to tell you that at our own home, um, we were never hit. We were never spanked. And, and because we were, I guess you would call it by today's standards, very poor, we only had three beds in the whole house. So a lot of us slept together. So when we were placed in the dorm that first night, um, my sister got scared and she says, can I come and sleep with you? And of course she can, you know, so we, she was sleeping with me and it was kind of a dark and scary place. There must've been like 50, at least 50 kids in there, uh, in the bunk beds and stuff. It's, uh, a dark place. So anyway, the, the officer comes in and I have to tell you, I would never call them house mothers. I would always call them officers. Um, she came in uh, after a bit and she heard a couple of three little girls on the opposite side of the dorm um, whispering or talking. And so she made them come down and stand in front of her and they were all crying. And then she looks in, in our direction and she says, and what are you two doing in that bed together? Get out here. So we got out there and we knew whatever was going to happen to the other three was going to happen to us. And sure enough, we got strapped uh, three times with a great big leather belt. Uh, like from the crook of your arm to the tips of your fingers, left big welts on our arms and hands. And that was our introduction to life at the, at the Mushel, the Mohawk Institute. It wasn't a very pleasant thing. Mm -hmm. And it proceeded to be just as bad as we stayed there from 1957 to 1961. And Grandmother Dawn, thank you for sharing that. And in a very frank and honest way. And that's what we're here for today is to have you as listeners understand from a firsthand point of view that these are the truths. These are people, men and women who were children and who lived this experience. And some of you might think, well, that was pretty harsh. That couldn't have happened because I've heard that over the, over the number of years, but these are the truths. This is the truth that we're not even near reconciliation, but these are the truths the hard core truth that has to come out that, that uh, these survivors are willing to share with you, willing to help you understand. And as Indigenous and non-Indigenous people, we, we want the truth to come out. We want to have peace, harmony, and friendship like the original Wampum Treaty of the, of the Haudenosaunee people with the Europeans. So Thank you for sharing. The residential school in Brantford, the Mohawk Institute, was Canada's first and longest running residential school in all of Canada. And approximately 15,000 documented right now, children were there. The numbers are probably much higher. And there were 139 of these schools in Canada, and the Mohawk Institute was one of them. And so, Elder John, I would just like to welcome you as well. And if you could share with us and try and help the listeners to understand your experience there and help us to understand why would, why would people do this to children? My name is John Elliott and I went to the Mushold in 1947, but I was sent there by J.C. Hill for a truancy, me and my older brother and my sister next to me. And uh, 
But they took us in there. Me and my older brother, the boys were after he took us down through the playroom and we come outside. And my brother said, what do you think? I said, I don't think I'm going to like it. He said, well, let's go. <laughs> so we took off running. We run about Canesville and jumped on the other train tracks. And a couple of hours, we was home. My grandfather had hired a car to take us up there. And uh, they were, st- my grandfather was the one that used to run the ferry across the river. And uh, him and that guy who took us up there was still there talking at the house there. And we're hollering at him, come on over, get us, Grandpa. And he, he come over and got us. And he told us, he says, uh, I didn't send you there. He says, uh, you were sent there by the government for truancy. But, hell, I was only 10 years old. I didn't know what he was talking about. But so the next day they took us back and, well, we stayed for a while, but I know Christmas Eve we ran, we ran away from there again. But we wouldn't run away the day before Christmas because uh, they used to take us to the Kirby house. And uh, they fed you a big meal and everything, give you a little toy. But the next night after supper, we hit the road. We, we was home by 9 o'clock that night. And that was the first time we seen Ma. Mm. <laughs> she was putting toys away for the kids. Mm-hmm. And we're knocking on the window. She, she's just shaking her head. With, like saying, what the hell you guys do at home? <laughs> but that was something. So we stayed home until uh, the first of the year and they... I forget whether they come and picked us up or they took us back. It didn't matter. When you got back, you got put over the bench, old Zimmerman strapped you till he got tired. But that never ever stopped me from running away. Because mm. they say I, I run, I ran away twenty five or thirty times while I was, I was there. But every time I went back, I paid for it. Mm. And Elder John, you were able to. 25 or 30 times, and you I were... I never cried once. Good. I could cry, but I wouldn't. Good. And I I know that ferry that you're talking about because... That, that was my grandpa Jesse's. Oh, and I went across that ferry many times mm-hmm. uh, with my dad. And so I know exactly what you're talking about. And I know where Canesville is mm-hmm. as well, having grown up on Six Nations. Mm-hmm. And... So can you, other than not crying in front of them, can you share a little bit about how it affected you and how now you're able to share with others your experience? Well, I'm pretty lucky. It never affected me too much because I was only two and a half hours away from home. If I got licked at school or if I got strapped for some reason or other, I would come home for a couple of days and. I wasn't like the other kids, but 90% of the other kids, they didn't even know how they got there or which way was home. Mm-hmm. But I did, so I was, I was lucky that way. Well, thank, yep. you, thank you for sharing that because many people would be led to believe, and, and yes, it's true that the goal of the Canadian government uh, in collaboration with the churches was to, with Duncan Campbell Scott, kill the Indian in the child. And... To, through education, and as a retired teacher, I can't imagine um, using education in such a 
an evil, convoluted way to create uh, something designed to uh, culturally genocide an entire race of people. And I think if the shoe was on the other foot, what, what would have happened? What would have happened if residential schools didn't happen and we could live together the way we were meant to live together? It's so sad that at one point in time, the people decided that this would happen. And so now we're facing uncolonizing, uncolonizing indig ourselves as Indigenous people and uncolonizing the non-Indigenous people and the disbelievers. So you are, and I, uh, in the, I've seen the documentary and I know uh, Grandmother Blanche Hill shares uh, a quote that she said that we are not afraid of the memories anymore. And I guess I would ask um, Roberta, sister of Dawn, and you two were so fortunate and it make me sad to be together as sisters because I have five sisters and I can't imagine losing any of my sisters and that relationship that you had, even in the midst of the terror. Um, Roberta, can you speak to that? Uh, yes, I can. Um, and it wasn't just the two sisters. We went in there. There were seven that were left. So six of the kids went, six of my uh, brothers and sisters went in. And the baby was sent to Lady Willington Hospital at the time because she was too sick or she was too little anyway. But um, I, I don't think people really understand the damage that's done when, when children are taken from their home and put into institutions like this because what's lacking in the institution is it wasn't there to nurture us. It wasn't to care for us. There was this other agenda there. So it caused a lot of damage and a lot of harm with families, you know, separating families. And for our families, we, um, I would say out of the seven of us, three of the younger ones went into foster care on the reserve. My one brother left the mush hole. He went into foster care on the reserve. Don and I went to foster care after the, the mush hole. And then my oldest sister from the mush hole, she went to a juvenile, girls juvenile detention center. So that split the whole family up. And, and really, we didn't really... Um, connect all that well. We found out eventually where the kids were, but um, that's 12 years out of your life, you mm. know, that you don't grow up with your siblings. And that, and that, that's, that has a real huge impact. Um, it causes a lot of, um, I think, damage uh, for the person that you, you, you've lost that ability to be in that family-centered. Um, you know, when you're with your family, it's a whole lot different than being institutionalized because you in an institution, you're following rules and regulations. It's very regimented. So you have to adjust your life to living in that environment where follow the rules or else there's punishment. You do this or else there's punishment. And there's violence in that, you know. So it wasn't something that we were used to because we came from a happy home. And punishment for speaking your language. Well, punishment yeah. for wanting to be with your sibling. and. That is so wrong. It, it, I can't even fathom that. An, and I don't, call, I don't call it a school. I don't call them schools because I know what a school should be and is supposed to be. And I know what teachers are supposed to be and their authority that they have over children. 
And I know that children as young as age two and three were forced to go there. And I can't imagine, I can't, I can't fathom that. And I, I often say that I, I feel bad sometimes because I think, why wasn't I taken? Why wasn't any of my family members taken? And so that in itself has an impact on, on my life, thinking that you, you didn't deserve that. None of you deserve that. No, no child, no child at all, doesn't matter the color, deserves that. But it was forced. And we, we want to get back past that whole idea that we're going to sit in that muck forever because we can't. And as survivors, you're thriving you're, you're, you're moving on, you're healing. And so, um, grandmother Shirlene, if you can comment on that, because I know, uh, in your role of what you do professionally, if you can speak to that and how do we go about, what advice would you give, um, survivors who are listening? I, I would go to, um, scan us um, Ewahawi means she carries flowers, and I'm from the Cuga Nation, um, Wolf Clan, and the Six Nations of the Grand River. And uh, I would say that um, when I started my, uh, when I start talking about this, like um, 22 years ago, I had to take off this coat of shame and shame and guilt that I wore. That you know, I walk, used to walk around with my head down and everything like that, but. I blame myself for that, you know, when I was 10 years old. I blame myself for that when I was 10 years old. And um, I, I look back on it like, me, I'm 10, you know. I didn't put myself in there. Like four of us were taken from my mom. And before that, before we were taken, in, before taken into the residential school, I lost a brother to the 60s scoop, right? Mm-hmm. And so I had um, my four-year-old sister, my seven-year-old brother, my nine-year-old brother. And I was 10 going on 11 that year, 1966. So um, I wouldn't talk about it because I was ashamed. And that's where I first got hit too. So through my journey of healing and everything like that, the psychodramatic body work that I've done, uh, I've had to, because I first got hit there, right? And and I got hit there because um, with Ruler because she asked me what was going on. Says, um, you know, like to us, uh, did we have a good day today? And I wasn't having a good day. I was missing my new sister from home. My brothers were separated on the other side. Um, my sister was bottom bunk. I was top bunk, and she was only four years old. So I had a lot of emotions, you know. So when I wanted to speak to somebody about it, I w- I wasn't able to. So I was um, I was taken into the bathroom there, a bunch with other girls, and I was never asked about you know, what was going on. So I'm standing there with my hands out like that, and she's taking a ruler up and down and up and mm-hmm. down, you know. But I wouldn't cry because I didn't understand why. Why am I getting hit, you know? That's the first time I ever got hit, and I was 10. Mm-hmm. So, um, And Shirley, sorry, you were just a child. I was. You were just a, re- a child. So to have that level of self, I guess it would be self-responsibility or self-shame that was placed upon you. Mm-hmm. How, how do you journey past that? Well, I went to, um, I went into, um, I never spoke about it because it was never spoken to me about, we'd never talked about where we were, right? I 
And so when one day when I just finally said, I was I go to I was going to holistic um, counseling, right? And I was going down to Ganukasha down at on sixth and um so I started going there and I got to understand why, you know, like I was holding these feelings, I was repressing and a lot of things diseases were happening to me. I lost my gallbladder for holding in anger, you know, all this stuff of this um trauma, right? It was all trauma. And so when I started dealing with the trauma and I start letting it go and I started to empower myself myself back up and you know, like it wasn't right for me to bear that shame and guilt, you know, at 10 years old. Exactly. But, you know, like um, when I get, tri- I get triggered every now and then, but, you know, my body remembers and everybody's body remembers trauma, you know, mm-hmm. and hopefully that, you know, like I'm, I'm dealing with my grandmother's that was in there in 1917 to 1919 for two years and just finding out about her journey, how she got there and everything like that. And, not telling my mother, you know, and my mother not understanding and four of us get taken away from her. And it's just like, wow. So it's just really something to overcome and everything. But, you know, like this is my truth and I'm, I'm speaking it because I lived it. Right? Exactly. And Charlene, in the in the uh, documentary, you say we treat the trauma inside. And can you just briefly explain what you mean by that? Yes, I work in an addiction center, Native Horizons Treatment Center down there, and it's like kind of like holistic healing and everything. So uh, we deal with the feelings. And what we don't do is we don't treat the drugs and alcohol because that's what's numbing, right? That's what's numbing, used to numb the feelings. It's not only drugs and alcohol. There's other addictions too, right? But when they come in there for treatment, it's we treat the trauma inside because ever since, you know, I believe, truly believe in our in our in our DNA there, we, we carry for our ancestors seven generations up, seven generations down. So, you know, um, trying to get them to, to do that and going back to trauma is, is really what it, what it is. Yes. And it's so true because we do carry that in our DNA and it, it is part of our, our, our blood memory, who we are, who our grandparents and our ancestors were and how we carry their lives within us as well. And it's, it's so true. It is so true because we know we're made physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually as beings, mm-hmm. as the creator made us. So it's, it's unbelievable to me how young children could have been uh, forced and, and, and made. Now, I, I know I've heard and I've heard people in this community say, oh, but the children wanted to go there. The parents wanted to send them there because they knew they could get a good education. That is so untrue. Mm-hmm. And I will just speak out that untruth right now um, to the people that are listening. And with that, uh, let's just take a little break. This is 88.7 Hunter's Bay Radio. I'm Dr. Shervin from Dairy Lane Dental, and you're listening to Muskoka Magazine. So welcome back. And we are speaking to... The um, four survivors, and there were others as well, who were part of the Nature of Healing, surviving the Mohawk Institute. Between eight, the Institute was opened in 1831 and closed in 1970. It is the longest running, and I believe the largest in all of Canada. And so let's take it back to um, Grandmother uh, Dawn. Grandmother, I, I know that 
they have been doing some searching, some ground searching. Do you have any updates on that or can you tell us any, anything about that at all? Well, yes. Um, actually, all of us are part of the board for the Survivor Secretariat looking for um, the bodies or burials. We, at this stage, have done a lot of, not we personally, but have hired people who are knowledgeable in that type of stuff at the GP, GPR and the LIDAR and other things, other methods of looking. Um, and I think the biggest thing that we have found out as a group is that even though you have, you know, the grids all scanned and everything else, we don't have a lot of people in Canada who can actually read that data. And so that's kind of a, it prolongs the process until we can get that, get something concrete. I mean, we have heard of, uh, anomalies, but you don't know what an anomaly is until you actually have to dig or do something like that because they're, um, it could be anything. It could be a dead dog. It could be a pipe. It could be anything. It could actually be a burial, but to that end, we haven't had any result yet. So we're all just learning about all of this stuff. And, um, I think the big thing is that, <clears throat> Um, at one point, we thought there was only 57 um, children that were actually unaccounted for. But now that number has uh, gone up to be in the 90s. Mm. You know, so like there's a lot of people doing research and listening to the stories of survivors or even what's recorded in um, some of the documents that have been handed in or through the files. So it's a long process. But and I know it's going to be a while going on still. And right now I can only tell you that um, uh, we're continuing the search uh, through um, the area that once belonged to the residential school and like the surrounding farm fields and everything else where all the buildings were back from the 1800s. So a lot of that has to be scanned yet. And uh, I guess we're, we're going to have to wait. And, I, and Grandmother Dawn, do you know the total acreage that the Mohawk Institute had? It was originally, I think, 650 acres. Wow. That, and that's a lot. That's that a lot is. of land to have to take a look at to find our children. And I guess my question would be the, the process of it and sticking to that process. And really, until every possible child. Now, I was also told that... Um, there are trees and there are homes. There are businesses uh, built on those areas. Can you speak to that? Um, yeah, that's one of the problems, actually, because everything is so overgrown. I mean, we, we did a um, we had a meeting just the other day about overlaying maps from the 1800s up to the present day. And you can see how the the landscape has changed, how the homes are now built up around that area. What used to be farmers fields might now be. A residential area. So those are the big problems that we have. And although we have asked and we're supposed to be notified if somebody wants to build, sometimes the builders just go right ahead and do it. So that becomes an issue uh, for being able to scan that property. But if they, if people followed the builders or construction people, followed the actual protocol and got 
our guys to come out and scan it before they built, there wouldn't be an issue because if there was, we, you know, they would, if they found a body there, then we'd have to stop. They would have to stop building. But some, not all of them follow those procedures that they're supposed to be following. So, so in the Brantford area, within that 650 acres, there are homes built on, uh, on possibly on top of children. Actually, there was a picture. Um, somebody had sketched a picture from, I don't know, it was the late 1800s or whatever. In one of those pictures, you can see where there were crosses. It obviously was a burial ground. Um, but now there are some houses built on that area. So I'm thinking, well, okay, they built right over it. And there are, um, sometimes we have found, not we, but people who are investigating or digging, or sometimes it's just people building homes. Uh, I know of one case, and I can't mention other than about where it is exactly. There was a body found. However, it was not a recent burial. They think that it was um, uh, from the 1800s or maybe even earlier when the Native people all settled in that area. So, um, and I have to mention this too, that um, we have changed from um, a criminal investigation. It's no longer called a criminal investigation for the simple reason there's nobody to charge. Right. And they, they have, um, the OPP had said, well, if there's nobody to charge, we can no longer go further. But we've now handed that over to the Ontario coroner's office and Dirk Heyer. And he has um, been very helpful and very accommodating to us to help us with this, uh, the burials with, if there is one and, and he's got our back. He's really, really good about um, helping us to understand the procedures and what must, what it all entails if there is something there. Okay. Excellent. Thank you for sharing that because that's information that um, we, it's up-to-date information. So we really appreciate that for sure. Um, now, I wish we could speak for hours about this. And unfortunately, we, we can't. I would love to. And maybe in the future, we can continue to have this conversation and to understand the lived stories, the trauma that affected small children children who have lives, children who have families, children who live in communities. And this, what has happened, they does not just affect an individual. It affects families. It affects communities. It affects generations. And I will never think that Duncan Campbell Scott's plan and the government's plan uh, worked because I have four survivors sitting in front of me right now who are thriving, who are living lives, working through their journeys of trauma that was held inside of them and willing to share that. And really that's going to be the end result of reconciliation one day. We will not see it. It will take seven generations for healing. And I just so um, respect and am honored to be able to um, hear and to help you as listeners of the Muskoka area, which is a traditional territory of Indigenous people, to understand 
And I think we need to stop saying sorry and start doing the action, which we know that needs to happen. So this is part of the action. This is not reconciliation. This is reconciliation. And so I so appreciate each one of you, Elder John Elliott, Grandmother Dawn Hill, her sister, Grandmother Roberta Hill, and Grandmother Shirlene Bumbery. They did not kill the Indian in the child. They did not. And so I just want to say um, we are, as a Huntsville community, so inspired by you. I'm inspired as an Indigenous woman con- to continue on. Um, and so I just appreciate you being here, you sharing so openly, and that you, if you, as the community of Huntsville, want to hear more, contact Hunter's Bay Radio at 88.7 and let let us know. Let us know what you want to hear. So, Nyawagoa. Goa.